right, amen. Good morning, church family. Again, we're so glad that you all have joined us for this is our final Sunday of Black History Month. And for this Sunday, we have a special guest speaker. Um, you may have seen the quilt as you came into the social hall. There's another one in room six that we'll be hearing a lot about coming up. Um, but we invite you to visit the one in room six and we've placed chairs in there. We've kept the lights low and we've left some paper for you to write down your thoughts. Uh, it's a very powerful image. We have advised that uh, parents be aware that this may not be something that you want your, your children to see. But all of us adults, I think we need to see it. And we need to sit with it. And we need to let it do whatever it's going to do to you. Uh, we planned this for many months. And I've been to uh, visit LaShonda's TED Talk, and I've seen images of it. But yesterday, when we actually hung it up, it was an emotional experience. So we invite you to see that. We invite you to, uh, of course, uh, take in the one that is in the social hall. Uh, today is a day of, 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 of conversation. We're going to start having a conversation that we've probably been be having for at least the last year. Um, we had a book study over white fragility this time last year and out of the book White Fragility by Robin DiAngelo and out of that book study we started having these conversations we learned a lot about each other and what our attitudes were towards race towards racism how we were raised the things that we've kind of been you know part of the way that we were brought up and after that a few of us sat around and we said, how do we make sure, when we talk about institutional racism, when we talk about institutions that have contributed to racism in this country, how do we ensure that life journey is not one of those institutions? How can we come together and move towards a church that can solidly say we are anti-racist? What does that mean? What does that look like? What kind of thing? So, out of that conversation, we started a, an advisory board. It is called the Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion Advisory Board. And we, through that board, we want to talk about how to make sure that life journey stays on this track that keeps us moving forward and not backwards. During those conversations, uh, Pastor Bambi's wife, First Lady Kim, Kim Hatter, we, you can give her a round of applause. <laughs> we will refer to her as First Lady going forward. Uh, Kim, Kim introduced LaShonda to us. And we thought, man, this would be great just to spark some conversation, just to have some of those tough kind of you know, talks. So today we're going to start that. And we're going to talk about how we can move forward. Now, we're offering a discipleship course. Pastor Tandy just mentioned that earlier called How to Be an Anti-Racist Church. It's a book by Joseph Brandt. Uh, it's available at the bookstore. It may have sold out in first service, but it is still available. Um, get your hands on that book. Be part of this conversation that we're having. And today we start this. Uh, James Baldwin is quoted as having said that to be a Negro in this country and to be even mildly consciously aware 
means that we are in a state of rage all of the time. I butchered that quote, but that's the general idea. To be angry all the time. And today in our Bible verses, we see Jesus being angry, right? Because Jesus looked around and said, this is all wrong. And when we see wrong, we are called, biblically called, to speak out against that wrong. And so this conversation today is not just black people talking to black people. It's a conversation that affects all of us because we cannot speak truth to power if we don't really know what the truth is. So Lashonda is going to give us a big heavy dose of truth this morning and I hope that you will welcome her and I hope that you will open your minds and hear what she has to say. There are going to be some images presented during her presentation that may be hard to see for young people. Be aware, we're really talking to the people on the stream specifically, but everyone, be aware that there are going to be images that may be hard to see, but they're necessary. Amen? So now I want just to bring up LaShonda, who is an activist, who is an artist, and a storyteller. And I hope that you will help me welcome LaShonda Crow Storm to our platform this morning. Can you hear me? I know we had tech issues last time. Okay, so not past the plants, right? <laughs> Just making sure I'll fall off the stage. So I am going to pull this back a little bit because I know me, and I'll just leave it at that. I'm going to set my timer because I could talk about this nonstop for three hours and not take a break. Uh, but we call this uh, presentation to bear witness because when one is in the world, sometimes you actually just have to show up and make sure things are not forgotten. Make sure that you're paying attention so that someone's story who may or may not survive is held within the community body so you could tell it. So if we could go to the next slide, please. And so I, for me in my own work, what I think is really important is that sometimes we get caught up in this notion that we've arrived and sometimes how we are the best thing since sliced bread. And the reality is everything is built on somebody else's work. And sometimes your job is not to be the superhero. Your job is to literally lay the next three or four bricks on the yellow brick road to justice. And you have to be comfortable with that. And so for me to get here, I like to always honor everyone who came before me that allows me to get to the Lynch Code Project. And so I am an interactive person, so sometimes I'll ask you questions, just raise your hand and pay attention to how your uh, community actually, you can understand what's in the room. But I began my journey first because of the work of Ida B. Wells. How many of you know her story? So one thing to think about is that the reason why we have so much information about lynching is because Ida B. Wells, late 1800s, early 1900s, would literally get on a train leave her four kids and family in Chicago and take this train to the deep south of America and go do investigative reporting and research. All these little ringy-dingies and things did not exist, so just imagine the level of danger that you're in as a woman, deep south black woman, interviewing people about what these histories are. Uh, so I always give praise to Ida B. Wells, because had she not had that courage, the work wouldn't be here. I always think about the NAACP because in the beginning, the NAACP began as an anti-lynching organization. So when lynchings would happen, these flags would be put out. Another man was lynched today. 
And so they too made sure that that was in the national body. Keep in mind, there were no text messages and all of that. There had to be other ways for people to make sure that these stories would be known. That on the background, you see that these are actually various clippings from newspapers. These are actually real newspapers. And uh, the black press, so when we think about what's happening to the press now, the importance of the press, because those stories would be told differently on, depending on who's telling them. But keeping alive and making sure that these histories that Ida B. Wells is investigating to give us other stories and to find the oral history of the people who were there, that the newspapers were important as also documentarians. And that leads us to Tuskegee University. How many of them know Tuskegee? How many of you know about the Tuskegee experiments? Same for the university. But what Tuskegee has is the National Lynching Archives. And so here, all the work of Ida B. Wells and the newspapers and all of that is kept in the archives so everybody can go see it. With that, we then get to how I come across lynching in this project, and it's the Without Sanctuary, which is a traveling lynching exhibit of postcards. How many of you know about lynching postcards? Okay. So the reality is, the, one of the reasons why we have so much history and so many images is because it was literally someone's job to show up when a lynching was going to happen, take a photograph, make a postcard, and basically the day you're talking about that would be sold on the counter at Walgreens while you're checking out. With any other postcard, it wasn't special. It was just a part of the daily life that this was someone's paid job, that this was someone's job to make a postcard and that you, as regular folks, could just go buy them. It was never illegal to make them. Uh, what became illegal was actually to mail them. And that was only after US postal workers were angry that they had to deliver, that it was too much for them. But it never became illegal. So that means that you could still make the postcard, put it in an envelope, and still mail it. But putting the postcard as is in the mail is the thing that became the problem. And so a lot of these postcards, they actually found them in family albums. So uh, the individual who created this book, Without Sanctuary, which was a traveling exhibit and went on for over a decade, found these postcards. And so if you live in the Deep South, which is where I was when I started the project in Atlanta, there's actually these strange little, you know, you could go buy this stuff in antique shops. And at the time when I started to dive into lynching, you actually used to be able to buy lynching postcards on eBay back then. And so after years of gathering these, he had an exhibit and it became a book. And it's actually when the exhibit came to Atlanta. And it's not as if I did not know about lynching. It's that I had never seen an actual lynching postcard with a woman. And not just the image of the woman, but here was her story. Because a lot of times when you look at the lynching rolls, it'll just say unknown Negro male three unknown Negro males of one woman and one child, and there will be no names. But here was a complete story, even though the story is problematic. If you go check it out and do research, because you can, you can imagine, I've been doing research for 25 years. But here it was, and I was struck. And from that day forward, it's somewhere about late 1998, early 1999, because I have to track it to when I made a piece of artwork about lynching, that I get, I see this image and I'm like, I have to do something. I don't know what the something is because that's kind of how artists begin. I don't know what it is, but I got to do something. And it's kind of like soup. It sits on the back stove. I add something. Oh, I don't like that. I add this. I don't like that. And it takes literally to 2002 
before I figured with this ongoing inquiry, where how do I talk about her history, not just lynching, but her history, because that's the thing I'm really attached to. And what I come to find is there is like a kind of bodies of people around the country who study lynching, that there's always that one lynching that you can never get over. And for me, and I've found some that are even more horrific, but her lynching and the story that she died with her 12-year-old son, her two-year-old daughter, and an unnamed two-month-old baby girl is the story that I'm deeply attached to. So if we could go to the next slide, please. And so we also have to talk about our home here in Indiana. How many of you know that there is a famous lynching that happened here in Indiana? Very few. So Marion, Indiana, huge famous lynching that happened. I always answer this up front. I don't work around that lynching because as I just explained, that's not the one that is mine. But I do work with people who work on that. So Marion, Indiana, uh, next slide, please. You will have handouts outside uh, that talk about the history of lynching in Indiana and actually talk about James Cameron, who survived that lynching. Uh, but his two friends did not. And so as we've talked about before, as he survives this, he spends the rest of his life. He goes on and opens several chapters of the NAACP because at that time, the NAACP is a what? Anti-lynching organization. He also becomes the founder of the American Museum of the Black Holocaust, which is up in uh, Milwaukee. The museum closed for a while. It reopened. I think when it's 2008, it reopened. So you can now go see that museum again. Now, but read his story. His story is complex. Um, that community is going through a process of how to create a memorial. I have talked to individuals there, but as with all community-based work, you allow the community to figure out how to work that through. So me kind of flying in saying, no, do it this way. No, because that's not my work. My work is to support them on their own journey. And their journey is more complex because you're talking about a community where you have some family members who did not survive that lynching, and then you have him and his family who did. So in that space, how do you have that conversation? Because it's much more complex. Next slide, please. So we began the Lynch Quilts Project again back in 1999, 1998, when I encountered the image. It was not called the Lynch Quilts Project, but I kept going, how do I make something? What do I make? And eventually, ongoing inquiry was, well, how do I honor her? And where does she come from? And how do you honor women? Because I'm really kind of dumbstruck that women and children are also lynched, uh, although 90 plus percent were African and American men. There are women and children and entire families that are killed at the same time. And how do you do this? And how do I create space for a community? And I just got going on. It became, it's like a never-ending mantra in my head. How do you do it? How do you do it? And eventually, quilting made sense. Create space for community. It is an art form that, it's a woman's art form that she would have had to do at that time. And it made sense. Just one problem. I actually didn't know how to sew at the time. Not at all. I'm actually trained as a bronze sculptor, painter, ceramicist. Um, but sewing, sewing machines are terrifying is how I felt, but I would take a 300 pound thing of boiling metal and I would be giddy, but you put that sewing machine there and it's a totally different ball game. And so I was like, well, how do I do it? Well, go find people because you gotta find people to help you do the work is how it begins. Next slide, please. 
And so this is the first quilt. And again, Laura Lelson died May 25th, 1911 on Kima, Oklahoma, with her 12-year-old son, Lawrence, her two-year-old daughter, Carrie, and a two-month-old baby named, we have no name for. Keep in mind, how many of you know about the Tulsa Race from right, uh, Massacres? Oh, most people. So this is about 10 years before that race massacre, and this is about a little over an hour south. We did, in 2013, take a pilgrimage to the site of the murder, as well as to the site uh, of her burial. And because if we are going to do this kind of work, we have to know the histories and we have to go get into those landscapes. And it's only when you look at the documents and you go into the landscape that you start saying, aha, something about this doesn't smell right. Don't know what it is, but some of this story that I've been reading just doesn't seem like it's what has been recorded. And that's okay. And it's important to think about it that way because when we actually went to the Okima, Oklahoma Historical Society, they had no records of this lynching. What makes it even more interesting is how many of you know who Woody Guthrie is, the great folk singer. Okay, this is his hometown. And so within the context of their archives, they had literally deconstructed his house, rebuilt it into the archives. There were murals all over the place. There was like a bronze sculptor. There was everything about Woody Guthrie, but there was nothing about her. And I'm not angry. I'm just like, oh, this tells us why we have to go be public historians and our own investigators, because then we can start asking other questions. But when we went to Tulsa, people had all kinds of stories and information to tell me. So fast forward. Next slide. <laughs> Sorry, I did say fast forward, that's on me. So this is one, uh, can you go back one slide? So this gets constructed from a postcard of Laura. The white areas of the quilt are fabric that people have donated all over the country because we again asked that question, how do we create space for community to come to the table? All of the tech that we have now didn't exist, but we could do a huge letter writing campaign and people mailed fabric from all over the US, picked up some down in Brazil and other places that I've worked. Next slide. This is the second of three uh, postcards. So keep in mind, this is someone's job to take this picture. How long did he have to sit on the uh, banks of the river to take this picture, then get it in production and do that? And so you're in Black History Month, and I would always argue that Black history is American history because we have two individuals. On the right side is Laura, on the left side is her 12-year-old son. On top are, are a bunch of white folks. Whose history is that? It's all of their history. It's just who gets to be on what side of that equation about where harm has been done and someone else doesn't have to have the harm. And so when you get asked these questions, you should always ask well, what's part of the story and which side of the equation are you on when that story gets told because what part of the story is being missed out on. So fast forward, next slide, sorry about that. And so the question becomes again, how do you build the container? How do you end up with a project? But what are all the things that has to happen in order for the project to come to existence and for hundreds of people to work on it, for thousands to encounter it over its 25 years? Like what has to be done? And so for me, these are some of my principles, those that are at the core of how I work, ritual. I love the fact that you all did breathe <laughs> as your song because typically we would not start any of these dialogues without first embedding some type of contemplative practice of breathing so that we could all be ready to digest what is to come. 
that is always rooted in narrative. It is rooted, it's people-centered, which really just means that it's about the people, because if the work was just about me making stuff, I could do it at home and go faster than 25 years, because I wouldn't have to slow down. And I wouldn't actually have to wait for people to slow down because I don't know all the skills. Every quote, I have to learn a new set of skills because I don't have them all. That's not my primary art form, although it has become after a quarter of a century. But in the beginning, it wasn't. I had to slow down so that they could also process and deal with their own histories and their own traumas. And we worked with folks who have lived through these histories. Keep that in mind that we have to show up. It's not enough to just say I'm at home stitching away, that I have to be in community spaces to create opportunities for us to enter into dialogue around the hard stuff. That I work from an art-based community development process, which really means that art solves everything. Art is like superpower of everything. If you look on my websites or other places, you'll see how we've used art to address uh, vacant housing, we've used art to address uh, kids walking to school being unsafe, we've used art to address everything, and I'm a big power and believer that art is the ultimate superpower, at least it's mine. It means we have to be flexible and adaptable, because what do you think when it means when I go into communities and maybe their city is founded by the Klan? or maybe their city uh, is dealing with a racial violence issue now. I can't just show up and be like, this is my project, we're gonna do it this way. I'm like, hey, how do we build a container that creates opportunities for us to heal what has happened so we can transform and create a different future that's just for all? And so it's reciprocal. Again, I can't just come up and tick, 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 which is sometimes how we are. We live in a transactional society where I give to you, you give to me, I give to you, it's like that. And sometimes you show up because your being and however way you are is the thing that can transform for someone else. And I'll talk about that in a minute. And so collective impact, that just really means we all gotta do it together. Uh, can't do it alone, because again, I could sit at home and stitch, or I could have sat at home and taken a quilting class, or I could have went to the quilting guild. So which one of those do you think I chose to do? Next slide, please. And so I also work around this concept of nonviolent warfare. Now I know that that is, does that make you uncomfortable, the notion of warfare and nonviolence? It seems like a strange combination. But to be reality is, is that is actually the footprint of what we call the US Civil Rights Movement. And here's the reality. What are you fighting for? I don't want to make a truce with poverty. I don't want to make a truce that says, I want to be in all-out war and I want to win because I want to be able to say that all the children in my community eat correctly. Not that I've made the choice because I've made a deal or a truce that these folks can eat and then these folks can't. That these folks can have a nice place, a warm place to lay their head, and these folks can't have any insurance, health insurance. I don't want that. I want over here to be like everybody is fed well, everybody, and maybe not everybody's wants are met, but everybody's basic needs are wet. That's what I'm working for. And so for you, again, when you go out there, what are you willing to make the truce for? So I work in community development, which means those people who are like, well, how do we play in this community? Well, if you don't argue against the notion that well, if we build this highway, it's good for community, and your response is not in the room, but what about the 10,000 houses that are about to get raised to the ground? What about those 
communities. That's I-65 that you drive on every day. But think about all the neighborhoods which were primary black and brown that were destroyed to build that highway. What happened to those people? What happened to their businesses? What happened to their children? It's a long connection point, but you, someone has to be in the room and asked when those kind of choices start to get made. Because we could take care of them, too. We could mitigate the harm, but those are choices. And so next slide, please. So I'm a wanderer over here because my eyesight says I can't really read that all the way to the back. You still see me? And so these are actually the principles of nonviolent warfare. First, people aren't your enemies. It's actually the unjust systems that we unhold that we have to fight against. All those isms, those are the systems you've got to push against. And that oppression always requires the cooperation of the oppressed. I know that can make you itch a little bit, but it means that if you don't push back, you don't protest, and you sit in that room. And this is especially because we have a majority white audience here. If you're in that boardroom and you hear some stuff going on, and you don't say anything, then you're actually a part of that system. It is your obligation at that moment if you're fighting for justice to be like, hey, you know that ain't right. Next slide, but how do you do it? So again, nonviolent warfare, keep in mind all of these images are taken from the US. These are not from somewhere, these are actually protest movements, the things that you're seeing on these slides. What are the, investigate, step one, because you could actually outline this and go home and do it and apply it to every project, everything you do, that's what I do. I shift it through the, uh, the lens of are we working toward justice? Am I working to win this war against injustice? Investigate, Laura Nel and I'll use the project. Went down and roamed around and I was lucky because we could have been very unsafe where we were at in Oklahoma, roaming around the countryside, asking questions about a history that had been erased. Keep that in mind. Education, we have the quilt project. I study, study, study everything I can about race, racial violence, how to uh, talk about race. I just study, 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 it's nonstop. Negotiate, now what can that look like? It means that you might go into a place and be like, we need to address the curriculum. I'm sure you've heard some of that. That we need to think about how we become an anti-racist church. That all negotiations first begin with how to engage in dialogue, which is really hard. Next step. Continuing on, demonstration. Again, this is actually an image from the United States not that long ago, within the last two years, that how you demonstrate when you're not getting justice, when you know you're living in an unjust place. What does resistance look like for you? And more importantly, how you take steps to ensure it doesn't happen again. So my contribution to how to do all this is the Lynch Quotes Project. Next slide, please. And you have to ask yourself, what are the tools of your trade? Next slide. Lots of people, lots of hands, all kind of hands, whatever you can imagine. Folks got to be there to be willing to do the work. So for me, again, it's always dialogue. How do we tell stories? And the hard part, how do we listen to each other? And this listening doesn't entail that because you've never lived it, that somehow that can't be the true story. That's just not what you've experienced. And quite frankly, having worked with refugees and other things, sometimes I'm thankful that I am not the one who's had to live that story, but it is my responsibility to bear witness and listen 
to the story, not to judge whether or not, oh, I don't know if I would, uh, uh, because sometimes we get caught up in that, that because you haven't seen it or you haven't lived it, doesn't mean it's not happening. There's all kinds of stuff happening. I'm just thankful that I get to bear witness instead of have to live it. I also like to make sure that we learn together. So that's one of the reasons I slow down. Because if I can learn with you and you can learn with me, we can slow down and have a conversation. And one thing that is also true is with this work, you have to leave a lot of space for people to cry. You got to leave a lot of space because you don't know what is going to come up. I work with individuals who lived with Jim Crow. I work with individuals who've had to watch their own family members deal with these things. My job is to show up and give the space for the sewing and the crying. And sometimes if they're moving too fast, they might poke themselves with a needle and they're going to cry anyway. So that's something to think about. Next slide. And so I am very thankful to the Needles and Thread Quilters Guild. It is a quilter guild, 250 strong. When I was in Chicago, primarily African-American, I went to do my program. And I keep in mind, I don't know how to sew. I've got my little like flyer, my little bad fabric that I was trying to use. And they're like, oh my god. And then there's crickets in the room. Because I'm like, I'm trying to make this quilt about lynching. But these are the folks who agreed. They were like, we'll meet you for coffee like next week, because we, we got to kind of think about this. And these are the first group. Probably would have taken a better picture. Who knew back then in 2002 that this was about to be something I was going to be doing for the next 20 years. But that's our first picture. Keep going. Next slide, please. You can see everything is hand sewn, handmade. We learned together. For some of them, this was the first time they did this particular type of quilting. Uh, we had to learn the technical processes on how to take a four-inch picture and put it onto a 10-foot quilt. We had to figure out how to do it, but we did it together. And we sewed together. We sewed at the Chicago Department of Cultural Affairs, uh, not, I'm sorry, Historical Society. They gave us free space because it's a big quilt. And we would just show up on Saturdays with the sewing machine. They'd be like, okay, we have to figure out where you're going. But the whole staff knew what we were doing. And we were all over that museum for two years sewing. Next slide. We also create space for people from different places and areas of the country to participate. This gentleman on the right is in an area of um, Portland. So how many of you know that Oregon was founded as a whites-only state? Okay, so it, that is in its constitution that it was to try to keep all the brown people out. This particular town outside of Portland was actually founded by the Klan. And so the individual I was working with, uh, they had had some kind of protest there about taking down the marker that the town was founded by the Klan. And we did this project where we could document the history and the history of individuals that uh, had died. Fast forward, and you see that this community looks at how to incorporate this history into their curriculum for the high school level. This particular slide is, again, when I started the first quilt, I was in Chicago. When I moved here, I had to find new quilters. And very thankful to Lady Kim over there, as now she's First Lady Kim. Um, she was like, oh, I know some quilters who happen to be her mother's church. And um, they said, OK, come. But you know how it went. We got crickets, because I show up to talk about lynchings. So you always get crickets when you show up to talk about lynchings. But this is the body of the individuals from that uh, church's particular quilting guild who's like, oh, 
we will come and start working on it. That particular quilt is the second one that you see when you're outside. Next slide, please. I am also a believer that everything must be intergenerational. I say that the quilts are from, have worked with people from three to 103 because you don't have to show them the images of lynching. You could talk about what does it mean? Have you seen somebody been treated unfairly? Have you been treated unfairly? Have you been hurt? Has somebody been mean to you? You just change the language to match the emotion. And what would you do if you could make them a blanket to feel better? So these two little boys, this was at a community event when I was in, uh, working with the Parks District. How would you want your blanket to get fit made? And so they picked out all the strips of fabric and we sewed it together. That becomes quilt, the beginning of quilt three. But those kids are three and five. And now we are, this was 2013, so what, they're adults now? Like, I don't know, I can't calculate. So they're kind of adults, if not late teens. <laughs> the woman to the right. So once you start making things, you just keep making things, right? Because every quilt is a new experience. She taught me how to dye fabric, because I had to be like, oh, I have this idea. So if you watch the TED Talk, you'll see the uh, quilt in the TED Talk that we wanted to make we had to learn new skills to make it. Fast forward, please. And what happens when you unleash this all on the community as a whole? So I had worked with a forensic uh, nurse that worked with some like historical photographer and we were able to identify the color of the dress. But because you create a table, you tell everybody just take pieces and do what you can and run out in the world and do it beyond me. This is a free We Can Do This, a Selma-based Alabama artist uh, that then made a one-woman channeled uh, performance about Laura Nelson. And so we made the dress, she wore the dress and did her performance piece. Fast forward, please. Afray is also an African priestess, so when we brought the quilts to Birmingham, also known as Birmingham, if you understand the civil rights movement, and she led a 300-person call and response libation, and that's how we began the introduction of that quilt into that community. Fast forward, please. But the quilts don't just arrive. I'm, I always get complicated. I'm like, I need, we need to figure out how the kids get to be there. We need to have some workshops. We need to have some sewing days. It's like a big production. It's not just quilts land in a space and then we do nothing. It's that how do we prepare the community to do work when the quilts are gone and I am gone? Because the quilts exist as catalysts toward transformation, not just as an art project. So this is our sewing day. We had about 70 people show up to sew and you don't have to know how to sew, you just have to be willing to come. Next slide, please. And so as you can see, those who can sew teach those who can't, and they sit down across that generational and racial divide and have a discussion about this history, about what we're doing. This was just before we went into lockdown due to COVID. Literally, the quilts came down, they came back to Indy, we went into lockdown the next week. But while we were there, we began the story about Laura Nelson's children, Lawrence and his two sisters. Next slide, please. This quote is just like fresh off the quilting rack. That's why I don't have a really beautiful photo to show you. And this was the hardest quilt for me to make because my own child was 12, Tamir Rice. All I could think about was him and Tamir Rice, that these are 12-year-old boys that are slaughtered just like this boy who was 12 when he died. 
that at the time we had uh, Maude Arbery's, that Breonna Taylor, George Floyd, all this is going on while we're trying to make this quilt. So you can imagine where I'm at. But it always began and end with her. she died with her 12-year-old child. I have a 12-year-old son. And we had to figure out how to put the kids in, the little kids, that we didn't have any history about what happened to the two-year-old and the two-month-old. But they were all just given the question, how do we as community wrap these children in love and compassion and do the thing that their mother could not do at the moment of all their deaths? Because I'm sure that's what she thought about was her children. And if nobody else could do it, we as community need to show up and do it at this point. So this is how we get to this final quote, uh, Lawrence and his sister. We had conversations about how do we heal the place where he had been castrated, because in the original picture, you can see the castration, and then somebody digs it off so you can't see it. So how do we heal that? And that became the question, how do we wrap them in love? How do we show the compassion that they needed? How do we as community be the mother that they needed at the end, because she was dying too? And this is the quote that we came. Moving forward, this quilt cannot be shown without their mother's quilt. The mother had to come first. It took 18 years for us to get to this one because the quilt series is longer, is older than my own child that I gave birth to. This quilt series could literally be graduating from college this year. My child is just in high school. So fast forward. We then, because I do, you got to go take pilgrimages. When the National Lynching Museum Memorial was built in Montgomery, Alabama, we went down and found their site. Now, I could probably never be welcomed back, and I'll tell you why, because I ran all over the entire memorial and built altars and like things all over the place. So there's flowers everywhere, everything that you're not supposed to do. But the security guard would look at me and be like, you, know, you, you kind of know, but then he would let me go on and make little sites of prayer and mill little altars and leave flowers everywhere, but I found their marker and was able to leave the flowers on it. Fast forward, please. But I know this is a lot, and I know I can see some of you, your brain matter is on the wall, and that's okay, because it's a lot. I've had 25 years to digest this. Keep in mind that this stuff hangs around my house until my own child was born, and, and our priest was like, take that down. The baby cannot be in this space with lynching hanging all over the place. I was like, what are you talking about? I don't see anything. He was like, you have been so embodied with it that you need to take a step back for the child. But as we talk about it, I love the song, All Things, because I'm going to end with this story of Tess Osplund. So she is in, I can never pronounce it right, Brolange, Sweden. And in the middle of town is a 300-strong neo-Nazi parade. No one would do anything. And she was just like, how is it that in our country that's supposed to be so progressive that we are watching the far right rise and that there is a 300 strong neo-Nazi parade coming down the middle of town and no one is doing anything. That the police aren't doing anything. Actually, when you see the images, the police are like trying to pull her away. Police aren't doing anything. There is no counter protest. She was like, someone has to do something in this moment. So it became a protest of one. She was like, if I could do nothing else at that moment, I felt that I needed to be there to let them know that someone here doesn't agree with what they're doing. And so when you're in those boardrooms and you hear things being said, when you're in the cafe and this has been happening lately and you see some Muslim woman gets her hijab snatched off, 
Standing by someone is the ultimate act of when it's hard. That's what it means to do the big and the small things. It's not always a 25-year project. It is to be able to stand up in that moment. So she just took, did this, and she didn't know that a photographer snapped the picture because she was all about someone had to tell them this wasn't right at this moment. When she wakes up in the morning, because now we do have social media, it has went worldwide, and stories have been written about this, and people started to have a conversation about what does it mean that we are watching the far right rise in our country, and what do we do about this? And it wasn't because it was some calculated thing, it was because she arrived in the moment and saw that there was some form of injustice happening, and she took the stand that she could. And it's very small when you think about it, but it was very big in the repercussions. So I would just encourage you to think where you can with what you have. How do you take that stand every day? Thank you.